Hi everyone, welcome back to the last episode of Generation Ag for the year. Very excited that I had the chance to have Annika Molesworth on the podcast. She's a phenomenal farmer, scientist and storyteller for a better future. She was actually born in Melbourne and during her childhood, her parents made the decision to purchase a sheep station near Broken Hill where Annika was exposed to agriculture. Annika is passionate about resilient rural communities and healthy ecosystems, and she's committed to helping create a sustainable food system. She has a PhD in agriculture and environmental management, and she speaks and writes on farming systems of the future, and she strives to design a world where everyone is food secure. She's won an extreme amount of awards. She's a phenomenal woman, including Young Farmer of the Year, New South Wales Young Achiever for Environment and Sustainability, as well as Green Globe Award for Young Sustainable Champion, to name a few. Currently, she also sits on the Board of Directors for Farmers for Climate Change, the New South Wales Committee of the Crawford Fund, which you guys would be familiar with. We did a podcast with them, uh, and as a governor of the WWF Australia. Most recently, Annika also wrote the Sun, Our Sunburnt Country, which is a book that focuses on her experience with the millennium drought from the causes of it and to the solutions as well as the extreme weather that was killing her land and her livelihood. Annika became really fired up and determined to speak out about it, which is where the book came from. I really hope you enjoy this well-rounded conversation about climate change, but also we talk about some really interesting stuff that I'm sure you would be quite wanting to know about how a Tesla does out in Broken Hill. So yeah, you'll really enjoy this for our last chat for the year. Thank you so much again, guys. This year has been massive, 2021, big for Generation Ag, but wait to see us in 2022. I think you guys won't even believe what we've got in store. It's going to be big. So we're really, really excited for the podcast. And again, thank you guys so much for the support. Have a beautiful Christmas. Be safe over the holidays. And if you're listening to this at another time, well, that's even better as well. So let's get into this episode. Thank you so much, Annika, for joining me on the Generation Ag podcast. So excited. I would love to just jump straight into you and your life. I'd love to hear about your childhood and your life growing up. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me on the show. I feel very honored to be here with you today. So my childhood, so I spent a lot of my childhood years in Melbourne, um, having quite a suburban upbringing, but my family purchased our farm when I was 12 years old. And so we drove, you know, the 1000 kilometers north of Melbourne to way out west Broken Hill, far western New South Wales. Um, and that was really my start of, you know, my understanding of what farming is, my connection with, you know, beautiful inland outback Australia. And it was an amazing place to be a kid because out on the farm, I mean, there's canoes on the dams, there's horses in the paddock, there's motorbikes in the shed. 
it was like this amazing like playground for a city kid like me and I fell in love with it like instantaneously. It's so interesting to hear about being in Perth I mean sorry in Melbourne I'm thinking because I'm in Perth in Melbourne originally and then going not just a couple of hours into regional Victoria but a thousand kilometers away for people that aren't familiar with Broken Hill and where you're from what's the landscape like what is the agricultural integrity there? Yeah so far western New South Wales is a naturally a a very hot and dry bioregion it's a semi-arid bioregion uh it's a place of like ruby red sand sapphire blue skies you can walk all day not see another person but you would see wedge-tailed eagles gliding above you would see kangaroos bounding over the landscape emus marching with their chicks across you know the place and you know, you go out at sunrise or sunset and you have the most spectacular 360 degrees views of this infinite horizon. And I think that's why I fell in love with the place because it's just so beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so when did your connection to agriculture start? When you obviously arrived at the farm or um, how long prior to sort of moving out there were your parents having the conversation with you about what they were about to do and how your life would essentially change? Well, my parents, like always, they have backgrounds in like geology, botany, anthropology, like during my younger childhood years we would always spend like uh, weekends like going bushwalking or camping so I had um, a lot of interest in the natural world and I think my parents really encouraged me to like question it like you know lean close like roll over a log or pick up you know the leaves like look underneath um, inspect the flowers look at the trees and I think that's where my like real curiosity of like environment and nature came from and when we came out here to far western New South Wales um, and we yeah my parents purchased the farm it was not only like falling in love with the natural landscape but oh my gosh like we're going to grow food from this place too and so there was a lot of discussion in those early years like what what that meant um, how we were going to do it as a family So the previous owners, they had European sheep and cattle breeds out here. We ended up choosing an African breed of sheep. So we sort of did something that was a bit different at the time. Uh, This is 20 years ago. Um, And then we went through like the process of organic certification. So like learning about, you know, that organics industry here in Australia So it was a learning experience, not only for me, but for my parents too. So we were definitely like learning (laughs) as a family what Australian ag meant and how we could play our role. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly agriculture when we're talking about livestock, because I feel like that is a completely different ball game within itself. And that would have been such a transition. And like you say, to do something different where you decided to choose intentionally a different breed of animal to produce on your farm back then, other people would have been like, what are they doing? That's so strange because we are such a community where when people start to do things differently, it takes a long time to adapt and change, as I'm sure you understand fully right now. So when did that journey sort of spark for you to want to become an ambassador or to really decide that you were going to start speaking up about 
climate change and particularly in the agriculture space? Yeah, interesting question because I guess I've never like actively tried to be an ambassador or, you know, be, I guess over time I've like worked out why I want to be more vocal in this space. But I mean, naturally I'm, I'm quite a, a shy, introverted person and like I just love hanging out with my dog in a paddock and <laughs> being quite isolated. Like that lifestyle actually suits me really well. Yeah. Um, but I've developed a bit of a, a public presence and a voice because the climate issue has become something that I am really concerned about. I'm generally worried like what it means for the agricultural sector, not just here in Australia, but what it means for farmers around the world, particularly farmers in developing countries. Um, And because I had, you know, this experience out here on the farm, you know, we went through a a pretty devastating drought period, the millennium drought. So really like having my eyes opened of like, wow, like, this is what heat waves and dust storms and drought actually mean to people, like to mental health, to the productivity of your farm business, um, to the native wildlife that surrounds you. Like I, I watched, you know, it, it became silent during the drought, like all the birds disappeared, like the kangaroos and emus vanished. And like that really had an effect on me because I was like, wow, like what's happening to my home? Um, and as I then like went into university and um, was really interested to learn about like environmental management in the agricultural sector. And I started to learn more about the climate and how the climate is changing because of the way humans are interacting. And I was like, wow, like this is going to have huge impacts on my future. Like I want to be a farmer and I'm looking at the projections and it's, it's going to become hotter. It's going to become drier. I already live in an arid zone. Like, what is that going to mean for my future? And I guess, you know, juxtaposed to that, I was sort of listening into the me- in, in the media, um, you know, uh, climate change isn't that bad. Like, the science is out. We heard it from politicians, you know, two decades ago going, oh, you know, we need more evidence. And then I was looking at the evidence in university. I'm going, wow, like there's really solid evidence here. Like why aren't we using the science? Why aren't we like being more proactive of getting on top of this problem? And I guess it was those reasons that made me go, well, I need to be like talking out and doing my bit. I need to be like sharing, you know, what's happening on my farm my concerns as a farmer, as a future food producer, um, you know, this is not just my personal opinion. Like this is solid evidence here from the scientific world. Uh, How do we better utilise that? How do we better incorporate that into our farming strategies, into our policies, so we have the best possible, you know, the most productive, vibrant farming future we can have? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's so important and I think that this is a topic that it honestly I think it terrifies a lot of people because we what we don't know, we don't want to know and I think that that's just been a thing that society has constantly just kind of put their head in their sand, their head yeah, head in the sand because everyone is just like, you know, we're just going to do our daily routine for now. That's good. And it's not good. And the fact that there's people like you that are highlighting, you know, if we don't do anything drastic right now, 
there's going to be nothing left. And we need to be having these conversations and we need to be talking about it severely like this because I think that that's the only way we're going to be able to create change, which is amazing for you because you have been able to also create Climate Wise Agriculture, which is another organisation that you have cultivated. Can you tell me about how this came about? So as I was going through my bachelor degree at the time and I was learning more about climate change and what it meant to, you know, the way we produce food, where we can produce food, the increase uh, of pests and diseases or the changes of their locations, how farmers need to adapt, um, how we can reduce on-farm emissions. I was learning all this stuff in university, but then I wasn't like finding it easily accessible for, you know, the general public. Either it was presented in a very abstract and academic way in a scientific journal Um, or, you know, people just weren't hearing it or engaging with it. And I thought, well, potentially I could play some sort of small role in this space. Like I could write a few blogs on what I was learning. I could share photos about my farm and try and like translate the science into something more personal and meaningful. Uh, I am also very, you know, concerned about the far west of New South Wales region because it is such a, a fragile, arid environment and it is going through such a transition, you know, right now. So I thought, okay, well, I'll set up some social media platforms where I can communicate with people. I'll run some workshops in Broken Hill. So I contacted scientists at universities and said you know would you fly out to Broken Hill and like give a seminar to a room full of farmers and people were really like responsive and going yeah of course (laughs) um so it was just by like asking the questions you know you know would you engage in this and putting information out there that I found there were a lot of like-minded people, like people who were concerned about the topic of climate change, what it meant for the farming sector. And I guess, yeah, climate-wise agriculture has evolved and grown from that, of that place. Yeah, absolutely. I find it quite interesting when people are talking about climate that you're right there's a science aspect where it's so science-based that the average farmer can't be able to translate and you almost need somebody like yourself who has the knowledge of the science but also the ag to bring together to be able to um, cultivate the right messages so that farmers actually understand what's happening How, how do you find this and messaging in the right way when you're trying to communicate with farmers Yeah, as you say, like sometimes the science, like the way it is presented and communicated, it is so difficult. Like you almost need a PhD in the topic to actually understand what that article is meaning. Yeah. Um, And that's sort of frustrating in a sense because, yeah, we've got a wealth of information, decades worth of evidence out there, but there's a problem with how we're communicating it to people so they can actually use it and act upon it. And so I guess that's sort of the space that I've kind of found myself in now is, okay, well, I, I understand the science pretty well and I'm constantly like reading more about it. So because obviously the science is evolving and growing and developing every single day, which is amazing. Um, and then I also have this lived experience on the farm where if I read something about droughts or, or heat waves, like I can visualize that very really because I can walk out in the paddock and go oh yeah like I do see the dams evaporating quicker oh yes like I do notice species are disappearing 
So it's not sort of abstract concepts to me. And then I think, well, I can like share photos or videos or write a few like little words about what this means. And I think the skill in communicating this issue is to make it local, personal, urgent, like actually connect people at an emotional level. You know, when you feel something at your heart, that's when like you actually change your mindset and that's when you change your behavior. So we need to connect people with the science at an emotional heartfelt level first. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the understanding that how powerful storytelling can be and how you can use that to your advantage is completely underrated, but I think you do an amazing job. Oh, and we'll talk you. about that with your book in a minute. But you're also in 2015 named Young Farmer of the Year and you have followed this with a variety of other awards and amazing speaking engagements, including your amazing TED Talk. Do you feel a lot of pressure on your shoulders now to be a representative, particularly on climate change in agriculture? Yes, I do feel a lot of pressure because, um, like, I have worked hard to develop, like, a good audience. I've, you know, done a lot of hard yards at, at university, you know, over 12 years or 13 years probably I don't want to actually count how many years of university studies. So I've got that like science understanding. And with that knowledge comes a responsibility that you have to use it. You have to share it. You have to make something useful of it. And so I feel like incredibly blessed and privileged with the skills and the knowledge that I have gained, that I have had opportunity to travel overseas, to work with farmers in different countries um, and so I should do what I can to help this problem. Um, so, yeah, there is a, a weight of responsibility there. But I think that's also something I try and communicate to others is that this is a, a shared problem. Like when we talk about the food system in general, actually, or the fibre system, these are shared problems because mm -hmm. we all eat, we all wear clothes. No one is separate or fragmented from the system. And so whatever happens in the system, whether it thrives and succeeds or whether it fails and there are problems, we are impacted by it and we are impacting it. Mm -hmm. So it is a shared responsibility that we have to each other in our world to look at problems in the eye and go, well, what can I do about it to make the future the best it can be? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that it's amazing that you are taking that stance, which is probably perfect to lead into the question about your book. You wrote an amazing book called Our Sunburnt Country, which talks about navigating a way to protect our land, our future and our food and potentially saying that it's within our grasp. When did you decide that you wanted to write a book? And can you tell me about the journey of writing a book? Well, I've always loved writing. Like I've, I've always loved the written word and like the craft of, you know, putting words in certain orders and actually creating images in someone's mind. Like I think there's a real magic in doing yeah. that. Um, and so I guess I've always had it in the back of my mind. Oh, one day, like I'd love to write a book. Like I'd love to describe this place and the story. But, you know, life is busy and it was always just notes in a notebook. And it wasn't until, you know, the start of 2020 when COVID was really escalating here in Australia and my calendar was suddenly like 
it was gone. Like <laughs> I had a, a clean year in front of me. And so I sat down on my bedroom floor and I lay out all these sheets of paper and I thought, okay, well, if I'm writing a book, like what's the story I would tell? Like what are the topics? How would I join them together? And I used kind of like a filmmaker's technique of storyboarding of like, okay, beginning, middle, end, like where I would set the scene, like who are the characters, like who would help tell the story with me, like what's what's the climax and tension and how is it going to be resolved, like what's the, the happy ending or um, the way you leave the audience feeling. And so I was just sort of like sketching out these ideas more for like fun and to amuse myself. <laughs> um, and out of the blue, I got an email from a publishing company and the publisher said, you know, if you ever thought of writing a book, let us know. Because the publishing house was obviously very interested in putting something out about climate change and the farming system. And somehow they had stumbled across my name. And so I literally like fell off the, my seat and like wrote back to this publisher immediately and said, oh, my gosh, I have thought about writing a book. Um, <laughs> jumped on the phone with her had this conversation about, you know, the book that they would like to put out in the world. And it was very much the book, the story that I wanted to tell about this topic. So a contract was written. I was given six months to produce my first manuscript, which is not a lot of time, <laughs> especially for a first time author who had no idea how to actually write a book. But I, um, I got to work started writing um went through days of like feeling terrific and going yes like this is going to be the best book ever and then you know the next day I was like oh my god what have I done I can't do this so going through the highs and lows yeah uh, one one of the most fun parts was actually reaching out to the people I interviewed um and sharing their stories learning about their stories hearing why they are so concerned about climate change, what it actually means to food security or their community and what they are doing as individuals. And I felt so inspired listening to these people and going, oh my gosh, like there are so many amazing people around the world in this beautiful food system that we are operating. And they believe that we can do something better and they believe that we should do something better. And I thought, yeah, what a what a privilege and a responsibility I have to sh to share that story, and so our sunburnt country was born. Yeah, amazing, and it's pretty exciting. I've I've bought your book. I haven't. I've got it here. I haven't <laughs> had a lot of a chance to read it fully yet, but I've read little pieces. And you have wrote something that's so, I think, relatable to everyone. Like there's conversations and paragraphs and obviously you're translating science you're translating stories but you've been able to write something that everyone can relate to and I think that that's so amazing because you know in this day and age I think agriculture we are trying so hard to connect with the general public and we we have a really tough time but also within ag we have our own issues like climate change when you were coming up with this concept what sort of a target audience were you trying to um, connect with on the most part? Well, I think like deciding who your target audience is, is one of the most important things to do because you can't talk to everyone. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you do actually have to work out, well, who is that person that I am trying to reach? Like, what is the story that 
they want to hear or they need to hear. What are their wants? How do you satisfy them? And so when I was thinking about this, like who do I need to be talking to? Um, who could really benefit from this story? I worked out that I wanted to speak with an urban audience um, of middle upper class socioeconomic situation, people who like food, who like eat out at restaurants, will like tweet about their food or Instagram their food, but don't feel connected to the farmers or to the problems that the food system faces, especially in terms of climate change. So that was my audience. And I really like spent a lot of time like writing out exactly who that audience is, like what platforms do they use? Are they on Pinterest versus Twitter? Um, who are their influencers? Who are they listening to at the moment for their information about food and where it comes from? What are their concerns about food? Is it nutrition? Is it price? Is it, you know, provenance and ethics of food? Uh, and so once I like really nutted that down in my mind of who exactly I wanted to write for, it became a lot easier. And it really kept me on track when I was like writing this manuscript, which is obviously a lot of words. I kept on thinking back, okay, is, am I writing this for my audience? Do they actually care about this part of the story? And you have to be brutal when you're writing too. There was a lot I wrote which didn't get the cut that I had to like highlight, delete. Like it's not important for this story or for this audience. I'll save that for another book <laughs> another day. That would have been really tough to work out what you really needed to include because I'm sure a lot of information could be included, but working out, okay, no, this is really what really is the core of what I'm trying to get across. And this is how I'm going to cultivate that. And obviously having that target audience really helped that. Now, what's it like going into a bookstore and seeing your book? It's pretty bizarre. Um, yeah, actually last week I went to Sydney for a conference and I went to um, Dimmick's on George, George Street and I walked in the bookshop and my book was there. I was like, oh, my gosh, like <laughs> I did that. Yeah, so it's, you're, it's, you're, it's an amazing you are, feeling. <laughs> you're front and centre of a lot of Dimmick's. I've been past a few and yeah, in WA and, you, yeah, you're front and centre, which is exciting because you're an amazing representative of our industry. So it's great that you're getting the presence you deserve. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's, it's a daunting thing, like putting one's story and thoughts out there for the world to see and critique. But it is a story that I am, you know, so passionate about sharing. And this is an industry that I love so much and I'm going to, like, fight for and help in whatever way I can, even if it feels, like, small and insignificant some days. But I, I want to look after the Australian farming sector and I want to look after farmers right around the world and I know by sharing stories like this and like being honest and vocal about the challenges we face and encouraging other people to be engaged with these topics and like help us figure them out together like this is a shared problem this is a shared responsibility like let's work together um and do something about it like that's the space I want to be in yeah absolutely I couldn't agree more you're quite active on Twitter and I love following your Twitter. You're always so interesting. But you recently tweeted something that really caught my attention, which was some, some days 
I'm so frustrated with how climate change is handled in Australia that I feel like screaming. Today is one of those days and I'm not apologetic about it. I'm frustrated that missed opportunities and loss from inadequate action, I care and I know that we can do better. Can you talk to me about this tweet but also the bigger sort of perspective behind this tweet? Yeah, so I tweeted this about oh, a month or so ago um, and <laughs> that day. So I had had a, a webinar briefing by one of the world's leading climate scientists who lives here in Australia. And he was like, he was going over, you know, the projections of what it means, um, you know, showing showing the graphs that we all know of, that exponential bend going mm-hmm. up, showing that the problems it's bad and it's it's yeah. still getting worse. And I was sort of sitting there, you know, shrinking back thinking, oh my gosh, like it, it's bad. Like this is a serious, a serious problem. Um, and then that day, you know, we had federal pol- political members sort of downplaying the urgency of the problem, the seriousness of the problem. There was a lot of conversation a month or two ago about net zero targets, where we should be, who's in and out of, you know, supporting this. And I just felt like so frustrated thinking we have so much amazing evidence out there of what's causing the problem, what we can do about it. We have incredible people in the farming community who who want to be involved in the solutions, who are saying, like, this is impacting my business today. I want to do better. How do I do better? Like, what, what, um, what can I do? Like, I need, you know, support or, you know, ideas. Um, but people, like, again and again, like, throughout Australia, sort of stepping up and saying, this is an issue that matters to me. And yet at a political level, it was as though, you know, she'll be right. We don't care. We've got time. And so I (laughs) tweeted this. And it's sort of something that's obviously been boiling away for a long time for a lot of people in Australia. You know, it's that, it's that frustration. It's the grief of like going through bushfires, of going through droughts and feeling like not enough is being done to prevent these things getting worse and they are projected to become worse. And then it's the missed opportunities. I mean, here in Australia, we have, gosh, we are lucky. Like we have so many beautiful natural resources, incredible minds, innovations, technologies, finance to do things, a a stable political system to do things. We're the sunniest and windiest continent on earth. We could be running our homes, businesses on renewable energies. Australia's chief climate scientist saying we could be a renewable superpower, exporting this around the world, you know, injecting wealth and skilled jobs into our regions. It's like it's all those opportunities that we're just not grasping. And why aren't we grasping them? Is it a lack of vision? Is it a lack of courage? Is it a lack of actually engaging in difficult conversations and looking at ourselves and going, well, we should do something about it and we can as a society and as individuals do something about it. So, yeah, that's 
that's the rant. <laughs> no, it's a big conversation, but it's important. Like we're about to enter 2022. These are conversations that we've been having for a long time now. And you're right. There hasn't been the action that's needed to happen to see change. And so I think it is that a lot of people are fed up or there's a lot of false promises or a lot of ideas being put out there, but then nothing's executed. And I think that leads to frustration, which is why I want you to, from your perspective, give me or provide me with an honest trajectory on the landscape if we don't actually change and also, you know, what what are some of the practices that you guys are doing on your farm to actually see um, a minimisation of climate change? Mm. So if we don't change, as in if we don't take serious action on climate change in the way that the science says we have to, we're going to be in a really, really dire situation. I mean, we've recently had the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, uh, produce a report two, three months ago saying this is code red for humanity. And scientists generally don't use like very flamboyant language like that. So when you have the world's leading climate scientists say we are at code red for humanity, you would hope people would stop and go, huh, Maybe this is something we should take seriously. Mm. But we will do something about it. Like, I absolutely believe we will. Uh, it's more of a, a question of when will we do something about it and what we're going to, you know, lose or sacrifice before we actually get our act together. Mm. So my hope is that we act sooner than later so we actually save you know the amazing incredible species that we share this planet with that we actually grasp those opportunities of being you know renewable energy superpowers and actually making sure we've got a, a beautiful stable vibrant country that um you know is an exciting place to have a future um and what was the last part of your question <laughs> um what no that's right uh what implementations or best practice are you guys doing on your farm yeah, sure. So on my family's farm, we, we've, we're involved in like a fair few, like, uh, which I love, um, citizen science projects. So like we go down to the dam and like record like the frog sounds on our apps and like that gets uploaded to the Australian Museum. Um, we do that with various species, plants and animals on our farm so we can monitor biodiversity. Um, you know, what we've got out here, how's it changing this feeds into like conservation efforts at both of a national and at a, a local level. We have identified a number of rare and threatened species. So we have set up conservation reserves. So fencing off these areas so they are protected. So we ensure like the, the revegetation and regeneration of certain species. We have solar panels on the homestead roof. So we run our business and our home off sunlight, which is lovely. Um, we do a lot with like uh, in the species space, like collecting seeds. Um, we've got like a home nursery, which we like uh, grow the seedlings and then replant them out into the landscape. Um, and yeah, the, the solar panels on the homestead roof also power our electric car, which is very exciting. <laughs> so they're just a few examples of how like we're changing our practices. So we're more friendly with our environment. And they really like paid off. I mean, you know, the solar panels, they've 
pretty much eliminated our household electricity expenses. We've got, you know, better biodiversity in the paddocks, which is just beautiful, fills my soul every day when I go out there and see, you know, <laughs> trees growing and the birds flying around. And having an electric car, like that's pretty fun too. <laughs> yeah. And the, the infamous Tesla. I want to know about this um, because it's not like, you know, you're 150 kilometers from the city. You guys are a long way away. And I would love to know what what the bu- meaning behind the purchase, when you decided to purchase, but also I'm sure a lot of people want to know how it fares on the dirt roads and what you've discovered about the durability of it. Yeah. So I guess like a bit of a background story, like I'm not a car person. Like as long as I get from A to B, like that's all I care about cars. My husband, on the other hand, he is a car enthusiast to the extreme. He loves fast cars. He loves loves loud cars. You know, he is on his phone 24 hours of the day watching anything to do with cars. Um, and he has a variety of cars in the shed. I mean, this guy loves being under the bonnet of a car. <laughs> anyway, for the last few years, we've been talking about electric vehicles. I obviously love the idea because, you know, there's no tailpipe emissions. Um, we could charge it off the solar panels of our home. Like, I loved it more for the environmental reasons. And also, they're the safest car on the market and when I do long distance driving in country Australia, like I, I want to be in a safe car. My husband, he, you know, became obsessed with electric vehicles when he, we went to Sydney and we test drove one, a Tesla, and he just like couldn't get over the power, the torque, like, you know, his mouth just like hit the floor and was like, we've got to get one of these. <laughs> um, and so fast forward to... Um, Uh, June this year, there were some incentives came out from the New South Wales government, which made purchasing an electric car slightly, you know, there were a few benefits. And so we put an order in, we waited three months, the Tesla arrived on the farm way out here in Broken Hill, and we have not looked back. I have been converted. I I now call myself a car person for the first time (laughs) ever. Because I sit in this thing and it is not like driving an ICE car, an internal combustion engine car at all. Like it's a completely different experience. My husband loves it, you know, so much because it is the fastest car he has ever driven. It is like stealthy, quiet. He takes all his friends, you know, for drives. <laughs> and this is a this is a mining community, by the way. Like these are, you know these are mining people through and through and they sit in this car and they're just like, wow. <laughs> so I think my husband has probably sold more Teslas than, you know, you can poke a stick at. <laughs> That's so interesting to hear. Yeah. I guess you're definitely, you're in cruiser country traditionally. So yeah. it would have, I guess when you first rolled it into town, there would have been a few interesting looks to see, see it evolve. Mm. Yeah, like lots of people like turning their heads or, you know, you pull up in the main street and people like stop and they come and have a chat. They're like, oh, what is that? <laughs> and they're sort of like inspecting it, asking questions about, you know, how long can you drive it for? Like what's the charging? And when you start telling them about what the driving experience is like, they're like, wow, you know, I'm going to look into this. And so out here on the farm, we've got a two kilometer dirt driveway. You go over a a railway line, over a dry creek bed. 
corrugations, potholes. We are terrible with our track maintenance. So our track track is rough. And this car, like the Tesla gets down there, no worries at all. Obviously, it's not a farm vehicle. Like it's not a land cruiser. It's not a ute. Like we're not throwing whatever in the back of it, you know, tools and fencing equipment. But for us to like drive to town or like drive on to Melbourne or Sydney or other places, it is the best car I have ever driven. Yeah. Wow. I just think that that's great. It'd be exciting. Obviously we know where I think potentially they're going to have a hybrid Land Cruiser new version, but it's great to see that this car, which traditionally would not be one that people would even consider having, you know, a sedan type car, but these are next level and you guys are making it work in the regions. And I think more people that do that, then there'll be more opportunity to have, you know, charge stations and that sort of thing. So it'll be more accessible. And hopefully, you know, in five years time, there'll be every type of car will probably be um, electric, or we hope. Absolutely. And so last week or the week before, um, my husband and I, we drove to the coast, New South Wales coast. So it was a 3,000 round trip, 3,000 kilometer round trip. And it was fine. Like, yes, we stopped like three or four times to, when we got to the coast. You know, you stop for 20 minutes, you fill up, you grab a coffee, toilet break. Um, we didn't pay for like that electricity at all. So if we had taken our Prado, which is our second car, it would have cost us like a thousand bucks to like do that 3000k trip. It cost us nothing in the Tesla. It was smooth. It was beautiful. And so I would love to see more rural people yeah purchasing these these cars and encouraging their local communities to put in in place fast charges so it makes that that travel a lot more easier yeah absolutely i think that it's happening it's slow but it is happening before we let you go i'd love to ask one final question which is what do you hope to see for the future of the agricultural industry well, I would like to see the Australian agricultural industry continue to thrive and, you know, be vibrant and welcoming and productive because we are like part of such an incredible community. And I'm, I'm so, you know, proud to be part of it too. And I think what rural people and farmers do particularly well is, not shy away from challenges. You know, they, they face them every single day. Every day there's another challenge thrown in our way. And so we're very good at identifying problems and working out, okay, what do we need to do to fix them? And the biggest problem that I see facing the Australian agricultural industry at the moment is that of climate change. And so I think as we engage in conversations like this, front up to the challenges and what the science is telling us, engage with people like, you know, all people in Australia and our politicians and say, this is something we need to do more on, that we can do more on, that there will be a flow of benefits if we do that. I think it will be a really exciting future. Yeah, I totally agree. And it, I think if we look like it is going to be positive and we think it's going to be positive, we'll start to see the positive changes and we'll see yeah. exciting things happen. And lastly, if people have enjoyed listening to this, which I'm sure everyone will have, where are the best places for people to go to find you? Uh, so I'm pretty active on the social media channels. So Insta, Twitter, Facebook, I've got a, a website, which I share some videos. But also if people are really interested in like 
climate change, what it means to Australian farming and food systems. Farmers for Climate Action is an amazing organization. It's got a great website, fantastic social media channels too. And they run webinars all the time, free webinars for people to join in, learn more about this topic and what they can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It is a great organization. Annika, thank you so much for your time today. I have appreciated everything, all of your knowledge, and I am so thankful that you've been able to share with us today. So thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Generation Ag. We hope you loved it. If you did, don't forget to visit our guest bios page on our website where you can get all of their contact information. And if you have an idea for another guest in the future or a story that you want to hear, you can get in touch with us via our email, which is hello at generationag.com.au. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at generation.ag. That's Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you've loved this episode as well, you can share it with your friends on your socials and make sure to subscribe to us on the podcast app and leave us a review because that all really helps as well. Thanks, guys. Bye.